when I shared with um, David Roseberry that I'd be preaching on these passages, he said, good luck. Um, where's he at today? Uh, they are uh, very stark and uh, very tempting for us to see gloom in them, I hope to convey otherwise today. Um, Angela Kay and I are extremely ready to be grandparents, but we're not ready for any of our children to produce the little angels, but we're ready. Um, in fact, we are, you know, jealous of our friends who are having kids and they're swapping pictures and, and we think, won't that be great? One of my friends says, grandparenthood is redemption because it's all the fun and none of the challenge, right? We've picked out our names. I want to be called Poppy, and uh, her name is Angela K. For short, we call her AK. I said, why not call you KK? Because they're not going to be able to say AK. She voted that down. Um, we love holding babies. We're so prepared for this and really excited about one day if that's God's gift to us. Because the best thing about being a grandparent is you get to send them home. You get to say, here you go, bye-bye, come and see me again. In many ways, grandparenting is what modern 21st century Western people like us think of as God. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis, and he once said this, and I'll have it up on the screen. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said, sorry, who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. The gospel lesson strikes at the notion of this kind of thinking, that the goal of life is self-pleasure and personal happiness. And Matthew 25 challenges that notion. With story after story, if you read the whole section, you'd see each one of the stories are warnings for the modern ears to hear, we sometimes brisk at them. But if you understand something about what God is doing with us, you will not see his warnings as harsh, but as good news. A few years ago, I went to a seminar led by a guy named Christopher West. And if you've ever had a chance to Google Christopher West, he's got some very good stuff, good thinking on marriage and human sexuality. And he says this, he says, the Bible can be summarized in five words, God wants to marry us. That's a summary of all of the scriptures. Tim Keller says that the Bible begins with a wedding, Adam and Eve, at last, and it ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll see that towards the end of this passage today, this sermon. All of us are called to be married to God. We are like all the people who have gone before, frantically searching in civilization after civilization, in generation after generation, year after year, for something or someone to make us happy, 
often only to find disappointment. I think I've mentioned this before. I'm a graduate of Oklahoma State, so last week we were the best team in the world. We were on top of everything. Friends were texting me. I was reading the news, and I never read the news about Oklahoma State football, and then yesterday happened, and it's a metaphor for life. Life is pain sometimes. We lost badly, so it's just amazing how I can put my personal happiness in the hands of 18 to 22-year-old men running around in tights with a ball. All along, Jesus' invitation stands to us, come and be the bride, my church, my people. So let's pray as we dive into Matthew 25 today. We pray, O Lord, that you would teach us by your scriptures what it means to know you, and to long for you. And we pray that our hearts might be encouraged, that our faith might be strengthened today, that the greatest thing that we can do in this life is to be ready for you to come again. And we ask that you would send your spirit to teach us your words and your truth. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So you're welcome to turn to Matthew 25. But in essence, the parable of what we call the ten virgins teaches that all disciples of Jesus have this great importance of being ready. In private, as the disciples are sitting with Jesus, he gives them this teaching. And so if you've ever been to Jerusalem, on the other side of the valley called the Valley of Kidron, is the Mount of Olives, where Jesus was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is teaching his disciples in the Mount of Olives as he's going to prepare to go into Jerusalem and be sacrificed these amazing truths. He's teaching them how to endure to the end. He's speaking with the disciples. And the setting of this is not insignificant for them. For for many of them, they understood the Old Testament. It was their Bible. Zechariah 14, the prophet looks forward to a day when the Lord will stand on the Mount of Olives and be recognized as king over all the earth. The coming of this day, this prophetic day when the the, um, Lord would come into the city, illustrates the coming of the bridegroom in Zechariah. No doubt Jesus' words had profound meaning. We often lose this because As modern Christians, we're often very, um, just not well-versed in the Old Testament prophets. I would commend to you the Bible Project. I don't know, raise your hand if you've ever watched a number of you. It's a great way to understand these books, especially as you dive into them. You know, when I was growing up uh, as a young Christian, it was cool to highlight in your Bible. Now we just have devices, right? Um, And so I would always watch, because I was pretty young in the faith, I would watch the people beside me to see how much they had highlighted. And the Old Testament prophets was usually not very highlighted. I call it the clean part of the Bible, because it's so hard often to understand. Much of Jesus' teaching is taking the Old Testament prophets and making it real and present. And especially in this way, with this great... Thing that we see in the book of Amos, the coming of the Lord. 
Matthew 25, 1 through 13 is very provocative. Jesus is obviously the groom, and we know in other theological ways we're the bride. But in this story, we are invited to a wedding party. And Jesus gives us a key to understanding this parable from other parables by the usage of tents. He says, in most of his parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. In this one, he says, the kingdom of heaven will be like. In other words, Jesus is saying, and he's helping us understand the present by looking at the future and how we are to live. This parable is teaching us what it means to live in his kingdom while we wait. It will be this contrast between two bridal parties, the five wise ones and the five foolish ones. And the temptation is to look upon this, and even as I read it, I feel this this, uh, sting. The temptation is to look upon it in 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 terms of morality, about how the selfish bridemaids didn't share the oil with the ones coming out ahead. One commentator says it this way. Aren't we told and have modeled for us throughout the scriptures that we are to share our resources with one another? Yet here, half the bridemaids refuse to help the other half. This is definitely not what Jesus wants to take away from this story. Now, all of us who are nice Texans know If someone doesn't have enough oil, well, honey, use some of mine. This is not what Jesus is getting at. Rather, the story is an invitation towards preparedness, not the sharing of resources. So I want to flesh out three simple salient points for us today. First, we don't know when Jesus will come. When I was in college, one of the churches I went to told me that Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist and he was rebuilding Babylon and we should expect in my lifetime his return, the the return of Jesus and the end of Saddam Hussein. I haven't interviewed that pastor since, but I'd like to know if he apologized for that statement. He certainly uh, led us to believe things that weren't true. Often we wait in anticipation for the return of Jesus, not knowing when it would come. And if we knew when it would come, would it help us? In the Thessalonians passage, earlier in the passage, Jesus challenges some of the Christians by saying, you think he's immediately coming, you've stopped working, you've stopped doing things. Be ready, be prepared. In this story of Matthew 25, it is expected that the bridesmaids would await the arrival of the bridegroom and greet him with a procession of light in the darkness. That's a pretty customary near ancient practice in weddings. Presumably, the bridesmaids are waiting either at the bride's home for the groom to come or at the groom's home to go get her and take her to the groom's family where the wedding would take place. All these bridesmaids have lamps, and they're all waiting with their lamps in eager expectation of the groom's appearance. Jesus previously to this section gave a warning. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. And this, friends, it is the tension of the Christian life. 
being ready for something you don't know will happen. It's an unexpected reality that Jesus will come when we know not. And the basis of our faith is God's promises that he will not leave us or forsake us and that he will come again. This is what it means to be people of hope. About seven years ago, the diocese I'm a part of, Christ Our Hope, we chose a name. You don't get to do that often in things like this. So Church of the Resurrection, a few people chose that name a while ago. We chose the name the Diocese of Christ Our Hope, and we had all kinds of names. We wrote them out, and we decided, and we voted, and there was this 30-year-old new pastor who said to our bishop, Bishop, what we need more in this day is hope. And that removed all the other names. How could we not, after that statement, be the Diocese of Christ Our Hope? Hopefulness is waiting. The basis of our faith is our hope that Jesus will come again. This is what it means to live prepared. It's to exercise hope. I have a young family back in Greensboro, and they said this to me recently. Um, they said, we couldn't decide if we wanted to have children or not. We're afraid of bringing children into this kind of crazy world. And they said, we have decided it is a great defiant act of hope for us to want to have and try to have children and bring them into this world as it is. We are and we become a people of hope when we await in this life his coming. We don't just wait on it like we're waiting on an Uber ride or a delivery. We wait on it actively pursuing Christ in the midst. So that's the first thing. We don't know when it will occur, but we wait for it. Secondly, this passage teaches us our work and our participation means that we are integrally involved in what happens. Look at the bridesmaids' assigned role in the wedding party to meet the bridegroom. We have a role likewise to play in welcoming Christ in his return. This is the work of the church. Today, the gospel of Jesus has been translated into 3,500 languages. Do you know how many languages are spoken in the world? It's not rhetorical. 7,000 languages. Some of the most zealous people I've met are Bible translators, eagerly and actively working to see the gospel translated into every heart language of every person in this world. That, friends, is hopefulness. That is waiting on the Lord. When I go to neighborhood parties or events, someone comes to me and says this. They say, um, what do you do for a living? And it's usually a conversation killer. So um, I, you know, I like to try to find another way to not start the conversation off with a, a stopper. Um, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Great. <laughs> Move away. Go get chips at the table. Um, so this is what I, I try to do. When someone says, what do you do for a living? I say, I work for a global marketing company. 
It's a family-owned business. It's a father-son company. Our market share increases year after year. We are really into expansion, and our goal is to put an office in every town in the world. We want to beat Coca-Cola. And it's a great way, a great company to work for. I mean, the, the, the owners are amazing. Now, the pay isn't necessarily the greatest, but the benefits at this company are out of this world, literally. When they ask the name, I say, I work for the church. Now, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but I try. You see, the church prepares for Jesus' return, in fact, by our faith and our activity towards his coming again, welcoming the stranger, feeding the hungry, visiting the sick and the imprisoned, and making disciples in all the world. That is another defiant act of hopefulness and waiting in the Lord. To watch or be prepared is not passive. It means to take your life in Christ very seriously and yourself less seriously. To give your best to do your job really well for Christ's sake. So that what you find all over the New Testament is this reality. Jesus has given us assignments for while he's gone. He's given us gifts and opportunities, resources and talents, skills and finances, connections and places of influence where we are to do our job of waiting and proclaiming with faithfulness and diligence. I've been involved with a nonprofit ministry out of Kansas City, and the name of it is Made to Flourish. And this is their mission statement. They serve the church. They, they say, we, Made to Flourish, exists to empower pastors and their churches to integrate faith, work, and economic wisdom for the flourishing of their communities. Rather than sitting back and lamenting the state of things, oh, isn't it awful? Disciples of Jesus who wait on him are actively engaged in changing things. The last thing this passage teaches us is agreeing to be in the bridesmaid party isn't enough but rather full preparedness is what Jesus is teaching. Five of the bridesmaids agreed to the wedding party, but they were really not committed to it. They thought of the Christian life like a sprint, a little short-term dash, but rather it is a marathon of long, steady perseverance. I read this statistic a few years ago, and it left me saddened. It says something like this, 85% of people who go into full-time Christian ministry, vocational ministry, leave after five years. The Christian life is not a sprint or a short-term dash. It's a long, steady perseverance towards Christ. The other bridesmaids came ready, prepared, and they brought supplies they knew what they signed up for and saw their commitments all the way through. One theologian concludes it this way, that one group of bridesmaids are just converts. They like the idea of the wedding party. But another, the wise bridesmaids, are disciples. 
Our work, my friends, of preparedness is discipleship. Disciples get to act as a go-between with the world. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a great passage. He says, speaking to the church in Corinth, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's what we get to do as disciples, helping people come to see that the greatest call in their life is a call to be married to God. Not just to another person. That call is for some, and it serves a purpose. A few weeks ago, in one of the lectionary passages, Jesus reminded us there will be no marriage in heaven. I tell Angela Kay, I say, I know there's not going to be marriage in heaven, but I hope that we can be neighbors, because I really do like you. And she says, yes. Um, I think that we have to grapple with this reality. We are called to be married fully to God. And that sets all of our other priorities and relationships in context. A few years ago, we, um, we would announce our marriage retreat in the church. And one of the single um, men in our church came to me and he said, Alan, we're really excited for the people who are married to go away on a retreat. We think that's great. We're all for that. And we pray for them and love them. But you remind us who are not married how single we are. And I said, you know what? That's when I began to change my presentation on this topic. We are called to be married to God first and foremost. For those of you who are seated here and you're not married, I want you to understand the Lord Jesus, the most content and satisfied person in history, was unmarried. And if you are married, marriage is a pathway of becoming prepared for Christ. But one day it will cease because our faith will be sight. The highest call we have is an eternal relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is worth everything in your life to pursue that. Another teacher of Christian faith wrote this. Someone asked John the Baptist how he felt about the fact that his ministry was declining and Jesus was increasing and making more disciples than he was. He answered and said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The great call of waiting on Christ is helping see, helping everyone see their call to be married. In the book of Revelation, and I'll close with this, there is a description of a wedding party. And this is what the writer of Revelation says in Revelation 19. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready.
This is what it means to be prepared and to wait on the Lord. Friends, consider this parable today from Matthew 25 again. And make your ambition in this life not success or happiness or financial freedom or marriage or family or your vocational pursuits. Make your ambition this, to be ready for Jesus' return when it comes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.